heart, I have overcome the world. This is God's word. You can be seated. So glad that you're with us this morning at Genesis Community Church. Whew. All right. Uh, just a reminder, uh, this is for some of you, not all of you. It can be for all of you. After, af- after, after the service today, we'll do a brief little family meeting uh, to just tie off some things. So after the service today, get your kids out of children's ministry, and if you, however that works, but I, I'm timing it at 45 minutes, um, but you know how it goes. Everybody's like, oh, it'll be real quick. I just, I'm putting no real, like, it'll be super fast, it'll be super short, but just wanted to remind you that that's coming after the service today, uh, and it's not like it's not like a panic meeting or anything like that. So, so it's just we've, we've, you know, we've emailed our members out about adjusting, expanding our doctrinal statement and wanted to give a financial update. And it seemed like use, use the time you have a captive audience rather than schedule an additional meeting that nobody will go to. So now you have the opportunity to skip it, but it's your choice because you're already here. And, you know, that's all. I'll leave it at that. So, courage, that's some of what we'll be talking about today, courage, and why we need it, why it's important. A word that shows up early in the book of Acts, a book where the disciples are now filled with the Holy Spirit and they're proclaiming Jesus, and there's a word you'll see repeated throughout the book of Acts, especially early on, the word bold or boldness, that they would proclaim with boldness. In fact, even after persecution, they come back and they huddle up and they pray, not that they would uh, hide from the world, not that they would, um, you know, that they would triumph over their enemies. They just pray for boldness in the face of serious persecution. So uh, I think about that even in our own lives, and, and I think about even us with opportunities that the Lord gives us to share our faith, to talk about Jesus. If, if, we, if, we, if sharing our faith sounds too daunting, then I'll just say to talk about Jesus, to talk about him, to speak of him, to, to let people know that you are his, you, he is yours. Like it's not, uh, it's not like you have to go to like this, like, well, hold on, now let me share this other part of my life with you. Um, I, I use it like this. Um, how many of you, just by show of hands, how many of you remember uh, Jordan's 450-foot bomb over the batter's eye? Yeah, like four of us remember that? Yeah. Um, that was last week. Um, and so I was, I was in class recently, and I was asking my students, like, what was your favorite part of game six? What happened? What do you like about the World Series? And everybody starts, they all start sharing. And, um, and I said, it is, isn't it easy to talk about things you enjoy? It's pretty easy just to speak about things that you're interested in, things that you like, things that encourage you, things that you're excited by, and this is our faith. And yet sometimes it's as if we, 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 we view talking about Jesus as something different than talking about someone we love. It's like a, we have to hit a different gear to do it, and you really don't, but one thing that, that needs to accompany how we speak of him is that courage or that boldness. We need to be able to speak about him with, you know, in, in a courageous way, confident in who he is, sure that he is going to work out his plans, knowing that it is a divisive name to use in this world, where some will reject him and some will embrace him. But courage is something often needed in life and in faith. 
And as we look here toward the end of John 16, I was sharing at our prayer huddle this morning, that it feels like it's an odd spot because you don't really know when Jesus leaves the upper room. Like John doesn't really let you know, and, and, and you know, he does kind of say, come, let us depart from here. But like, there's not this like, clear, like, and now they're done. So in John chapter 17, is he praying in the upper room? Is he praying in Gethsemane? Is he praying as he walks? You don't really know where geographically he is. But we're getting to what some people are calling the, the, this part of the upper room is like the farewell discourse. As he's leaving, he's sharing things with his disciples he'd want them to know. Which is, it's like, you know, in a sense, even though he's coming back in just a few days, like, but like the parting words that he wants to help his disciples know what's about to come, how they're going to respond to it, what he would do for them. But he's about to explain how he wants his disciples to operate in, a, in the world that is about to come, specifically the world that's about to come after his ascension. He will speak some about his resurrection, but the world that's to come after his ascension. Now, you have to think about it from the perspective of a disciple. And, and um, I was reading in my you know, D.A. Carson commentary on this. He brought it up really well, which is like, okay, so this guy's here. Jesus is here. D.A. Carson doesn't go, okay, this guy's here. He's Canadian. So it's like, you know, y'all, so Jesus is there. Uh, that's, I'm sure that's how he talks. Um, I, just, I know these things. No, he was saying, so you have, a, you have the Messiah, and he's with his disciples, and he says to them, I'm going to die, I'm leaving you, and then I will return, and then I'll leave you again, but don't worry, the Holy Spirit's going to come. That would be, for a disciple hearing this and trying to process it, that would be a confusing message. Hey, just so you know, I'm leaving you, but I'll be back, but then I'm leaving but then I'm sending something, and actually that's going to be better than if I were here in the first place. Like, it's actually better that I leave again. Wait, so, 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 so it's like you're leaving a second time, but you're sending something back. And that, that fails like a, a, like a consolation prize or a replacement. That doesn't seem as good. And so you can kind of imagine being a disciple in that moment where we're like, oh, no, it totally makes sense. But it really doesn't make sense. You can see even here at the end of 16, they're still like, oh, now we get it. We know everything you're saying. Oh, you're speaking clearly. This is wonderful. And uh, Jesus is like, oh, wait, so now you understand? Believe me, you don't even get it yet. But he's still trying to help them because he's still their gracious Savior. He's still that good shepherd. And he's trying to guide them in how they are to understand life. Now, first thing we're going to do to get into this is look at just kind of chronology. How does Jesus relate to his disciples as time passes? Because it changes. Then we will look at the uh, type of access that we get now to Jesus and then the challenge that Jesus gives his disciples. And the challenge he gives to them is the same challenge that he would give to us as the passage ends. But first we need to see that Jesus' ministry changes with time. Now that would seem to make sense. Any relationship changes with time. But Jesus' relationship to his disciples is unique. It changes rather drastically as the resurrection happens and then the ascension happens and then the sending of the Spirit happens. And this is a part of, a part of it we don't often think about. So we're going to put these kind of blocks together so we understand as Jesus is explaining to his disciples when he's leaving, when he's coming back, how they're going to be sad, how they're going to be glad. We can kind of put this together. So before his, um, before his death, Jesus spoke to his disciples and to crowds, but he spoke to crowds in parables. Remember that? Now, John doesn't have any parables. So we, 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 as we've gone through the entire Gospel of John, we've had nary a parable. 
And so you might have forgotten what those are, but sometimes you read those parables, you're like, exactly what are we talking about here? But that's actually what we read, Matthew 13. The disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them, that would be the crowds, in parables? Now, Matthew's not John, remember, Matthew's uh, the fir- our first gospel. And he answered them, to you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom, but to them it has not been given. For the one who has, more will be given, he will have in abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he, is, he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For the people's hearts have grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it. And they wanted to hear what you hear, but they did not hear it. Now, Jesus speaking in parables early on in his ministry, as he was speaking specifically to the crowds, we read in other Gospels that he would explain to his disciples what he meant. But John has gone to great lengths to also let us know that that did not mean that his disciples were at the, like they were on the dean's list of understanding what Jesus meant. So Jesus would explain what he was teaching to his disciples, but they still seemed rather clueless when it came to actually applying that knowledge to real life situations or to real life teaching. But Jesus would speak in parables. And the parables then uh, would be clarified in his instruction But then he kind of moves along. But as that time comes toward his death, which we get in the Gospel of John uniquely, John 13 through 17, as that time comes towards his death, his language clarifies. He speaks more clearly about what's going to come as he prepares them for the coming days and weeks that they need to understand. And then for us to prepare us for that life that we have with the Spirit. So he is beginning to speak much more clearly with his disciples in the Upper Room Discourse on how he wants them to operate in his absence. He has not spoken like this always. And you can just look through the Upper Room and figure out some of the things that he begins to speak. For example, the heavy emphasis on love and that through the disciples' love of one another, the world will know that they belong to him. Well, why would the world need to know that they belong to him if he's going to be there? Couldn't they just point? Hey, he's our dude, like right there. He's, he's, just, he's right there. We belong to Jesus. But he needed them to know the way in which he was, they were to operate and experience even his care in his absence. That the love the disciples show to one another is the way in which the, the disciples are to experience Christ's love in his absence as he leaves. He speaks heavily here toward the end on the Holy Spirit. He's preparing his disciples to understand how they will even be able to endure and speak in ways that make sense and how the Spirit is supposed to operate to make what Jesus said clear and and help them illuminate the spotlight ministry of the Holy Spirit that makes Jesus greater. He also has a heavy emphasis on prayer. And we don't really see do you, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, do you really see the disciples praying a ton? We don't have great reference of the disciples praying a ton. We have reference to Jesus praying. But in the book of Acts, we do have reference to the disciples praying, gathering, worshiping, fasting. And so that's not to say that they don't pray or they haven't prayed. But, but the emphasis becomes about how they will operate. And so 
a ministry that is built on the love the disciples have for one another, a ministry that's built on the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, a ministry that is built upon dependent prayer. All of those are these preparatory remarks Jesus is giving. So he speaks to his disciples before his death and burial and resurrection. And that kind of moves from less clear to more clear as he gets closer and closer to his hour. And we're right up against it. Then he speaks to his disciples after his... uh, Resurrection, but before his ascension. That's that weird period of 40 days where he's speaking and helping them understand. This is some of what we get to in John 16. John 16, 16. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you'll see me. A little while you'll see me no longer. And again, a little while and then you'll see me. So if you look a little befuddled, his disciples had the same thing. What is this? He says, a little while you will not see me. And again, In a little while, you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. So this is what you do when, you know, I I, I often, I have great help. In fact, mainly another great group of people write the community group discussion questions now. If you're together in community group and you're discussing questions. I used to write those, uh, but but I don't get, I don't write, not I don't get to, I don't have to write them as much anymore, and they're much better now. But sometimes you get this like, well, what the heck did Hans mean when he was saying this question, when he was asking this question, when he was making this comment. Uh, and I'm like, well, you know, you just must not be dependent on the Spirit enough because it's totally clear. <laughs> so the disciples get together, and they're like, what in the world is he speaking about? A little while you will see me no longer, and then in a little while you will see me? What is that? What does he mean by this? Jesus knew, verse 19, what they wanted, and he said to them, is this what you're asking yourself what I meant by saying a little while? Like, why are you repeating this so much, John? A little while you will not see me, and again you will see me. So this is where he goes to. There's a period after his death where the disciples are lost, but he is about to return. And I believe he's speaking about that period because he speaks about the joy that they will have upon realizing Jesus is back. Truly I say to you, you will weep and you will lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And then he uses the illustration of birth. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So some people try to put this into like Jesus' return, his second coming. That that's how we're supposed to live this out. We're supposed to understand this as Jesus is returning again and we'll have joy at his return, which is absolutely true. I hope that anybody who's alive when Jesus returns is glad. Right? That would be a, that, I think that would be a decent emotion to have, joy at his return. However, he is saying here that when his disciples see him, verse 22, you will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And so there seems to be an enduring kind of joy that exists. This is why I think it's his post-resurrection appearance. When, when the disciples realize, oh my gosh, everything Jesus said is true. We kind of had questions about it. We knew he spoke about it. We knew he seemed confident about it. We, we followed him for these three years. We abandoned him for a little while, and he had to come back and show us who he was. But everything he has said is true. 
And so he, he says to them, you will rejoice, but you will, be, you will have sorrow while I'm not with you. That would be while he is buried. When he's in the tomb and the disciples are lost, and they are lost. They do not know what is going to happen. They do not know what is going to come of them. I, I, they're like, do I just pack it up? Is it over? In fact, remember Peter, we're going to get to that into next year. But Peter just goes back to fishing. He's like, well, this is what I knew. This is what I did. This was my life before Jesus. And so I guess I'll just go back to fishing. The disciples have wandered. They scattered. They were not identified with Jesus at that moment, even though they were, they were trying to figure out what was going on. And so he says... You'll have sorrow, but then you will have joy, and no one can take your joy away from you. He uses the illustration of birth. This is something I haven't experienced. Um, the pain part. I have seen children born, but the pain part of it is one I have not experienced. Uh, but I have not talked to a mother who has said that was totally not worth it. I've talked to no mother who would say that. Now, there are some, uh, I have, uh, Courtney and I have a friend who, she loves being pregnant. She had five kids. We have another friend who has 13 kids. For, yeah, somebody say, what? Yeah. <laughs> a kid said, what? Like, 13? Yeah. Yeah. 13 kids. There are a lot of them. And I felt like they had 13 kids in like nine years. I'm not sure how it happened. Um, it was not nine, but it felt like it. And it was pretty cool for a while because our kids were kind of synced up in age. Like they had some older ones. It was like, bam, 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 bam. Like, like, well, we kind of stopped at three. You just kept going for another six, it seems. But anybody I've spoken with, even those who have had incredibly difficult experiences giving birth, look back and go, everything was worth it. And Jesus is trying to tell his disciples through that illustration that everything is going to be worth it. And this comes at a time where, honestly, surviving childbirth was not, not as easy as it is now. Right? Like, like, this is coming at a time where childbirth was a pretty spooky thing. You, know, you go, well, let's go. Let's see. But Jesus is saying, just like everything becomes worth it when you see that child, everything will be worth it when you see me. Everything you would have thought, every doubt you would have had, any worry you would have had, the fact that you abandoned me and came back, all of it will be worth it when you see me. You will rejoice, and just like a new parent, no one is going to take that joy from you. No one's going to be able to take that from you. And today, church, we have that same joy we have the joy of being identified with a resurrected Savior, one who conquered sin, Satan, death, one who we know because of that is returning <clears throat> for that final victory where everything is ended, where everything is done. We receive that, and then we should rejoice. We should be ec ecstatic because of our connection to to the Lord Jesus. But he's trying to help his disciples understand that it's going to get bad and then it's going to get good. And then what they get with him for 40 days is Jesus instructing them. He teaches them. For 40 days after his resurrection, this is what we get in the book of Acts, written by Luke. He says this, in the first book, O Theophilus, the first book would be Luke. 
So uh, that's why often you see like Luke Acts or scholars like Luke Acts scholars because one guy writing these. In the first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Verse 3 of Acts chapter 1. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So remember, there's kind of that first, how did Jesus interact in his incarnation before his, resur- or before his death? He spoke in parables, he taught his disciples, but things were rather cloudy. Then there's the time he spoke with his disciples, which was a unique time. It was the post-resurrection, pre-ascension time. But the Spirit also hadn't arrived yet. But the Spirit is about to arrive. And he's instructing about the kingdom, and he says, just you wait. And so he's with them for a moment... And then he will leave them. And this is the third way he is with his disciples, communicates with his disciples. He communicates with his disciples or is with his disciples post-ascension through the Holy Spirit. So he's present before his resurrection. He's teaching. He's instructing. That teaching becomes more clear. But then he's present after his resurrection where he's continuing to teach and instruct. But there's still confusion. Then he leaves and the Spirit comes. And the Spirit, he becomes the way in which we engage with the Lord. We have his word. We have the Spirit. We have his people. We are beginning to understand the things that he spoke both during his time before his death and after his resurrection. Things are becoming more clear now with the sending of the Spirit. The Spirit is sent for the benefit of the disciples. John 16, 7. We went over this recently. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. You can understand how a disciple might be going, I don't think that's better. I don't think it's better to have, to have something else, someone else here. I don't understand why you, like, you're who we've known. We've been with you for three years. This is, this is what we know. This is what we understand. And it's better that you go away? Well, they don't understand that yet. In fact, they don't understand it until the Spirit arrives. And then they realize that it is better. And the ministry of Jesus can go out and forward into a world that needs him. And this is interesting because I said it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Jesus. But if you look in Acts chapter 16, this is the book of Acts chapter 16, there's this unique phrase. I've referenced it before, but Acts 16, 6 and 7 on Paul's second missionary journey. He has three that we kind of say. And the second one gets him over more into, into Greek territory. But he wanted to preach throughout Asia Minor. And you read in Acts chapter 16, verse 6, he went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, which is an odd phrase. Then you read in Acts 16, 7, and when they came to Mysia or Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. The Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Now, I always think it's odd because you go, is preaching a good thing? Is is speaking to people about Jesus a good thing? I think our answer would be, yeah. Yeah, hopefully. Even if you're here today and you're you're not a Christian, you can probably realize that the answer should be yes for the people in the room. Like, you could even cheat on this test and get it right. Like, is it good to, to speak about Jesus? Yes, check. 
So I have always thought, how in sync with the Lord must you be? How much must you be abiding? How closely must you be walking with the Lord to know when the Spirit says not to speak? That, that, that requires a certain kind of intimacy with God to know that there are times where you don't speak and there are certainly times where you do speak. And Paul wanted to speak, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. That leads to the Macedonian call, a dream, where he has people come, come join us. And he goes over, the Philippian church is planted. So, so the reason that that happens is so more work can be done in a different place. But what I wanted you to see in 16, 6, and 7 is that the Holy Spirit, is, he's referenced to the Holy Spirit in verse 6 and references the Spirit of Jesus in verse 7. And the reason I say that is because we do get Christ's presence through Christ's Spirit. It is not as if there's the Holy Spirit and then there's the Spirit of Jesus. And that there's these two different things. Because we follow and worship one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. When the Spirit is ministering, He is speaking in the same way that Jesus would be speaking to us. When those desires are there, they're the same kinds of desires that Jesus would have for us because we worship one God. And so we see this ministry that happens post-ascension through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes after Jesus leaves. The Spirit makes the words of Jesus known. The Spirit convicts the world of its need for Jesus and its Faulty understanding of righteousness. Now, all of that, I know you're like, why do I have the lecture in chronology? Because Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he seems to be kind of going back and forth in how they're supposed to understand what's going on. I'm going to be with you for a little while, then I'm going to be gone, you're going to be sad, then I'm going to be back, and you're going to be glad. But then he talks again about a way that he's going to minister to them, in fact. So we look in verse, for example, verse 23, and we see this. In that day which is often a day that seems to be referenced like a future day, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name, but ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming... When I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. I would say that would be both the post-ascension, he's speaking and communicating about the kingdom. We see that with his, or post-resurrection. And then the Spirit continues to clarify and help our understanding of what Jesus meant. This is why John has those breadcrumbs of, nobody knew what he was talking about until the Spirit came, then we got it. And he'll use that kind of language. Okay. In that day, you say, I don't speak to you in figures, figures of speech. I'm going to speak to you plainly. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from, came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. And I'm leaving the world. And I'm going to the Father. So we see here his reference to his ascension. And there's a unique change that is going to happen for the lives of the disciples that shows up in 23 through 28. What is that difference? That difference is prayer. We don't think of it like that, do we? But he's actually saying, as the relationship is beginning to change, you're no longer talking just directly to me when Jesus is in the room with them. You're going to talk to the Father. 
but he clarifies to them that you're not just going to talk to the father like he's disinterested in you, like go talk to dad. Like that's not what he's saying. He goes, you're going to talk to the father and you'll ask things in my name, but the father himself loves you. He loves you. They have only been kind of understanding who, who, how God loves them through Jesus. But Jesus goes, Jesus goes, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So this is thoroughly consistent for us. So it would be good to help the disciples as he's preparing them in their transition to go, just so you know, when, you're, when, you, when life changes for you, when I'm gone, it's going to change how you communicate. And you're going to speak to the Father. But don't worry. The Father loves you. He loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, come into the world, and now I am going, leaving the world and going to the Father. So all of these transitions that we have in Jesus' ministry, the way he communicates to his disciples, right? In, before his death, they're just talking to him. And he's teaching them, but they seem to be Wicked confused. After his resurrection, they have joy. They understand some of the things that he said. The fact that, yes, he did come back. He rose from the dead. And he communicates them. He teaches them. He instructs them about the kingdom. But he prepares them still for life that will be after. That life that comes by God's spirit. And then he pivots to, and this is how, this is how we communicate. You're going to ask things in my name. Now, how many times in the upper room thus far, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, uh, we're getting to 17 next week, uh, 13, 14, 15, 16, has Jesus begun talking about prayer? It's there a lot. Ask in, my, uh, ask in my name, ask in my name, ask in my name, ask in my name. There's all these references to asking. So Jesus is beginning to show how the relationship changes for the disciple in the absence of Christ's physical presence, but the, absence, but the presence of his spirit. What changes? The disciples become zealous prayers. And they become zealous prayers in the absence of Christ's physical presence because they're realizing that things have changed. Now he's gone. The spirit will be. And we have a way that we can still commune and communicate with God in prayer. And this is what's great. Jesus has to prepare the disciples for this. He says it again and again and again. But he's trying to say both in the sending of the Spirit and in the way we'll pray to the Father, this is not second class status. This isn't like, hey, talk to my assistant and we'll work something out. You know, you know how it happens, right? Like you, you need to go see somebody and it's like, well, no, just talk to, talk to this person. They'll take care of it for you. And it feels like you just got like knocked down on the totem pole of friendship, you know, like relationship. It's like, oh, I can't just like, I can't just ask you now. I got to ask somebody who's going to do that. And so you could feel how that might be a bit of a slight. The disciples are going, well, I've been with you, right? If Jimmy and I were hanging out every single day for three years and then I said, hey, man, no, he'll say it because he's cooler. He goes, I'm leaving but don't worry, there's going to be someone here, and it's going to be just as good. It's going to be just as good with that, that, that other person who's here, and that's going to continue the relationship. You might feel a little slighted. I mean, let's be fair. Three years with one person, and now you're sending another person, and I have to interact with that person. So he's trying to help, help the disciples go, the Spirit 
It's better that I leave because the Spirit's going to help you understand my words because I spoke what I got from the Father and the Spirit makes clear what I spoke. It's better for you. And when you pray to the Father in my name, it is not like a tag-along in my name or anything like that, but no, the Father loves you. And he loves you because you have received me. The disciples, in all of their confusion, and all of their weirdness, and all of their fuzziness, the disciples have followed Jesus. Jesus has selected them out of this world. Jesus cares for his disciples. Jesus has led his disciples. And he said multiple times, you didn't pick me, I picked you. But they have also been there. And in whatever fuzzy understanding they have of who Jesus is, it is recognized by the Father as love for Jesus. Belief in who Jesus is and what his mission was. Some level of confidence in that. So Jesus has been with the disciples, but things will be changing and that's the world that we live in, the ascended Lord Jesus and the sent spirit. And so what should happen for us in our life but regular, dependent, abiding prayer? Regular, dependent, abiding prayer. I, uh, how can I say this? When I talk to people who want to follow the Lord but don't have any desire to pray, who struggle to read his word, who don't engage with his word, who don't seek him in prayer, who don't abide in him, I don't, like, I don't have very many bullets in my gun of how to help. I'm not, I'm not that like, I'm not that spectacular. I have a couple of like life hacks for like if you want to manage your calendar or whatever else. Like I can do some of those things. But when it comes to your walk with the Lord, abiding in the word of God and abiding in prayer, that's kind of the one-two punch. And if we could get those things solidified into a regular habit that we do both individually and in our groups and when we gather, if that becomes the norm for us, then a lot of what we read in John 13, 14, 15, 16, a lot of that begins to express itself. Because we are connected to our Lord in the ways that he has prescribed. And so it is like if, the, if you go to the doctor and the doctor says, I know what's going on with you and you need to follow this regimen. And we go, I understand what you say, but could I do something else? Could I just do something else? I don't want to have to do those things. Engaging with God's word is hard for me. It's difficult. I know, yeah. How do I pray? What do I pray about? What do I pray for? But those are the transitions that begin to happen. He's, he's spoken in John 15 about how we need to abide in him and his words abide in us. And if we abide in him and his words in us and we ask whatever that we need and we will get it. Why? Because we're asking from a position of right relationship as we abide. And so this is a big transition he's preparing his disciples for that we've seen now throughout this upper room. You're going to pray more than you have. You're not just going to talk to me and ask me to do something for you. You're going to talk to the Father, and the Father loves you. And yet, very often, word of God prayer, that's kind of like, again, there are other ways we engage. There are other disciplines in which we pursue. But those two, how we engage God's word, 
how we engage the Lord in prayer, those two are pretty hard to walk away from and, and have any real desire for a growing or thriving relationship with God. It's really hard to abandon those and expect to be walking closely with God. I don't really know of another way. And so if we don't actually hear the words of Jesus, which is, your relationship with me is changing, and when it changes, ask in my name. If we don't take that to heart, we're going to have some problems with how we walk with the Lord. We're going to have some problems with how we engage with the Lord. Because we're trying to, like he's given us the prescription, he's given us the way to engage with him, and it's like we're going, what else is there? Like, I, that works for some people, but I, like, I, don't, I, don't, I don't do that. I don't know how many relationships can exist without some form of communication. Right? I mean, maybe, maybe you can have a relationship that exists without communication, uh, but I don't know how that happens. And so, think of it like this. As, as the Lord has communicated to us, we have his word. He has given us his word that we can know and we can love, that points us to Jesus, that shines light on our hearts, that teaches us about how to follow him. And sometimes it's just truths that we need to grasp, and sometimes it's commands that we need to obey. Sometimes it's knowledge that we can grow in. Sometimes it's sin that we must avoid. But he communicates to us in his word how we can know him. And from that, we're able to go back to him in prayer. Like, like that's, that, that's, that's how it works. God's communicating to us, and we're communicating to him, and these two things work together. This is why we've said it many times when Jesus' half-brother James gets on his congregation, the people he's writing to, about their prayer life. He's like, you're praying just for whatever you want. You have no concern about the Lord. You're only asking so that you can spend what you get on your, on your pleasures. Well, then you begin to know that there's a wandering from the heart of God. And a desire for self. Now, with that, you're start, we're starting to realize as, the, as life changes for the disciple, as Jesus is ascended, as he goes up and the Spirit arrives and my connection to Jesus comes, is, is born out or understood through prayer and I abide in his words. As these things begin to happen, it's going to change how we operate in this world. We'll get to that in a moment. But the disciples, after hearing Jesus say this, are pretty happy that they think they have the corner on now Jesus' words. Look at verse 29. His disciples said, oh, okay, now. Now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered, Do you now believe? Behold, look, the hour is coming, and indeed it has come, because he's about to die, where you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. So the disciples are so sure of themselves. Aha! Now! Now I know, Lord. Now I have it. Now you're speaking plainly. Now I get it. I'm good. And Jesus goes, do you really think you're good? Because you're about to abandon me. 
I will have nobody but the Father. Well, that might sound a little interesting because we know on the cross, right, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the, what he has in his relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit, is one will, one purpose. That even when the world has abandoned Jesus, even when his disciples have abandoned him, the plan of God moves forward. Even when no one else was there, the plan of God moves forward. And Jesus can say with a level of confidence, you're going to leave, but don't worry. The plan of God moves forward. The Father will be with me. Why? Because it is what is required for our salvation. The only person who has not tarried, not wandered, not moved aside is the Lord Jesus. Everyone else has gone astray. We have all gone to our own ways. But the Father is there. The Son is there. The Spirit is there. And no one else endures in that moment. Endures to the end in that. The disciples still, even though their confusion is, is, is leaving, the disciples still have a confidence in themselves. And not a dependence totally on Jesus. Confidence in their understanding of how things are going to go. Now we know it's going to be okay. Now we have it figured out. Thank you so much that three years later, you've spoken. And Jesus goes, you don't have a clue what is about to come. Theological humility. Recognition of your inability to endure, to have strength, lack of confidence in your own ways, those are all pretty good markers of a disciple. A lack of confidence in self. And the moment that Jesus helps them go, hey, I'm speaking to you more plainly, they go like, I knew it, now! It's like they're always looking for the opportunity to have the upper hand. And Jesus says to them, this is not how it'll be. You will be gone. And isn't it true that in just a few moments from this time, the disciples are going, I don't know that guy. I'm out. This is not what I signed up for. Even as he has prepared them for this, they have still, they have still wandered. They still don't understand If we, as a church, could grow, I'll say continue to grow. I don't want to not give you any credit, give us any credit. In our lack of confidence in ourselves, that we can get it done, that we have it together, that we understand it rightly, and have more confidence in the Lord, what he has spoken, what he has promised, and a rejection of our own strength, then I don't think, I don't think, I don't know if there's anything better for us but a greater confidence in God and his word and a lesser confidence in us. That'd be a pretty good marker of an assembly of God's people group of God's people gathering together who do not put confidence in the flesh, who do not trust their own understanding in things, but trust what God has spoken. 
And even when, even when they see God has spoken something and they struggle to believe it, they can lean on what God has spoken because he has demonstrated himself faithful every time. And so they can say, this is what it says, and I might even struggle to believe it, but that's a me problem. That's not God's problem. I may have doubts about it, I may waver in my confidence on it, but that's not God's fault. I will trust in what he has said, even when I struggle to embrace it. He is good. I was sharing at D Group this morning, if you read Psalm, I believe Psalm 72, one of the best Psalms, because the psalmist is like, everybody else is doing better than me. People who don't know you are prospering, rich people are getting richer, I'm sitting here faithful and poor, I don't understand why it works this way. I mean, it is like bring your gripes before the Lord. This is where so many of us live, right? You just see life going so much better for other people, and they don't even know Jesus. How come, how come they don't know Jesus, and they don't seem to have a pain? They're never in the hospital, they're never at the doctor's office, they never have to worry about bill collectors or whatever else, they're doing fine, and I'm over here faithful and broke. I don't get it. And then he goes, until I went into your sanctuary and I remembered their end. Once I rooted myself back in you, in your truth, and what you were doing, I no longer worried about what was going on around me. I no longer had confidence in myself, but I could have confidence in you. That is what I needed. Now, I think that psalm, which was in yesterday's reading, I think it's appropriate for us as we think about what Jesus is saying here. Because in verse 33, he summarizes his farewell discourse like this. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Not in any other source. Not in your family. Not in your friends, not in your job, not in your success, not in your heritage, not in your lineage, not in your Facebook friends, not in anything. I've said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Right before Jesus prays, which is coming in chapter 17, and he prays for himself, and he prays for his disciples, and he prays for us. He prays. That's how John really finishes out this, this moment. He prays. Right before he does this, he centers his disciples' hearts on what he's done and what he wants for them. I say these things to you so you'll have peace in me. that you will trust in me. You will have tribulation in this world. He's spoken to them about how the world will hate them. He's spoken to them about how they will be dragged into synagogues. He's spoken to them how they will be put on trial. He has spoken about, yes, if they hate you, it's only because the world hated me first. And as that list gets bigger and bigger and bigger and the job description of a disciple seems less and less appealing... I want you to have peace in me. 
you will have tribulation, but I have overcome the world. I might put it like this for us. Have courage as a disciple in a world where you don't belong. Have courage as a disciple in a world where you don't belong. Why? First, because he's already said it in verse 33. Jesus has conquered the world. He's conquered the world. There is nothing. And by that, the world system, Satan, his ways, his rules, Jesus is superior. Secondly, we have the love of the Father to sustain us, to carry us. We have the spirit of Jesus to teach us and to instruct us, to remind us, to bring to heart those things that he said. So that when we go through those moments, when we struggle, when we have issues, when we're not sure what's going to happen, we're not sure if we're going to get a promotion or lose our job, we're not sure what the doctor is going to say, when all of those things come our way and we are unsure of what's going to be, he goes, take heart. Some translations do say, have courage. Be strengthened. Why? Because we belong to Jesus. And Jesus has overcome it. And the more we remind ourselves of who he is, the more we desire those things because of our abiding, the more we long for it, the more we pray in those ways, in his name, according to his will, the less appealing the world becomes. The less scary the world becomes. The less worry we have because we have the Lord with us. We have the Lord in us. That's what we get. So have courage. Have courage today. Have courage when you leave. Have courage when you speak of Jesus. Why? Because he is greater. The spirit is at work. He is more powerful, more glorious, more gracious, and more good than any earthly system. Take heart, have courage, be strengthened. Because in him we have peace. In a world that feels out to get us. <clears throat> and I don't mean that in like the, uh, everyone's out to get the Christians, everyone's out to do that. No, that's not what I mean. The world systems reject our Savior. Hate our Savior. And we belong to him. You don't think they hate the family of the Savior? And yet he says, take heart, have courage. I've overcome the world. Let me pray that for us now. Heavenly Father, as we consider, as we think of what Jesus has said, what we have, the Spirit who ministers in our hearts, who teaches us of what Jesus has said, we have Jesus who spoke and said, Take heart. Yes, we will have tribulation. Yes, we will struggle. Yes, this world hates us, but he has overcome. Forgive us in those ways where we do not obey, we do not follow, we do not trust, Lord. And by your grace, for your glory, strengthen our hearts that we might have courage, confidence as a faith family. Trusting in what you have for us, what you have provided, 
that we might abide and rejoice in what we have. That our longings for your word, that our longings to pray according to your will would only increase with each passing day. Father, we can ask these things with full confidence that you love us, that you care for us, because of the work of Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Every Sunday at Genesis, we go to the Lord's table. We take communion together. Communion is the reminder of just that. Even in the taking of these elements, we remember that Jesus overcame the world. We proclaim the death for our sins. We proclaim and rejoice in the life that we have. That anything the Lord has asked of us, he asks of us only because he has provided the, the way, the means, the mechanism to do it. And so as we think about having courage or taking heart, and we go to the table, we can remember it is Jesus who overcame the world. Communion is available for all at Genesis who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If that's not you this morning, then you are free to just remain where you are. But in just a few moments, when we're done here, you may come up. The elements are stacked. So there's a bread and a cup kind of together. Take one stack for you or uh, for your family and hold on to them. And Johnny will come up. He'll bring us through the taking of the elements together. It is a, it is a communal, a family reminder of the provision we have in Jesus. And even as we remember what he's done for us, we can take heart. Because through this sacrifice, he's overcome the world. And we needn't worry about what's coming our way or what's currently in our face. Because we have the Lord Jesus.